Hello, welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. Kasjay Yamoa is our guest today. Wow, he has an inspiring story. Before we get into it, let me just say that he is a practicing radiation oncologist and assistant professor of radiation oncology at Moffitt Cancer Center and Research Institute. He covers a lot of ground in this one. He talks about one of the central challenges of treating prostate cancer patients, and that's how aggressive the, the cancer is likely to be. He talks about the prostate cancer disparities affecting African-American men and some of the reasons for that. He talks about the incidence issue, why are they getting it more, the diagnosis issue, treatment delivery, treatment response, outcomes. Uh, he talks about some of the work that he's got going on in, in West Africa, and he has a very inspiring message uh, at the end for cancer patients and caregivers. So let's get right into it. Dr. Kasje Yamoa. Well, so I was wondering... As a clinician, what's your biggest challenge when you're when you're caring for men with prostate cancer or at high risk of the disease? What's the biggest challenge for you? So, I, I think you know, looking at men diagnosed with prostate cancer, we are really looking at a, a snapshot or just a time frame between um, when when they actually contracted the disease and when we actually see them in the clinic. And with with every patient, there is no way of telling. Uh, at least currently, um, there's no way of telling um, uh, if the patient indeed has very aggressive disease or has an indolent kind because prostate cancer, as, as you may know, is really a spectrum of, of uh, aggressiveness. We have patients that will have indolent disease that will percolate in the prostate for years and never really do anything and, and will not be, you know, will have very little clinical impact versus those that can become metastatic or really impact the patient's survival. And at the time you see a patient, you really don't know, right? I mean, it doesn't, there's no uh, uh, indicator that this disease started 10 years ago or started, you know, a year ago, right? And that a disease that is, uh, yes, we do have the PSA levels and we do have the, the biopsies that tell us the gleason grading and some other metrics in terms of the uh, rectal examination that can give you the stage, but you're just looking at a, a time frame. And so our biggest challenge in the, in the field is, okay, when you are recommending treatment for this patient, uh, you, you, have, you don't have a sense of, you know, what, what, what aggressive pathway the patient is on. And I think that's particularly more important when we talk about subsets of populations that, that are known to have an increased mortality or disease burden from the disease. Well, so that's interesting. It sounds like it's a big challenge for you to know, one, how long they've had the prostate cancer, um, whether they've had it for 10 years or one year, and I guess also whether it's likely to be aggressive or not. Um, right. And is it more of a challenge for African-American men? Absolutely, and I, I think the reason for that is that 70% or more of prostate cancer is indolent. So we know from our big data and big studies and clinical trials we've done across many decades that, you know, especially say the low-risk population that, you know, whether you treat with surgery or with radiation or you watch them, you're not going to impact the overall survival, right? You know, prostate cancer is not going to be, yes, the patients that you may watch, if you're on an active watch regimen, you could still treat them before it becomes a problem. But in the studies that we know to date, the most recent study says that you know, those patients actually did have more uh, metastatic disease, so it could impact their quality of life if you don't do anything in a reasonable amount of time. But overall survival was the same. So when you look at the, the lower risk or localized prostate cancer phase, the, the, the trouble is that doesn't apply to all men, right? You can't say, well, based on that data, every low risk prostate cancer patient that you're looking at in front of you is uh, they may not have a great aggressive disease because 
the results wasn't 100%, right? Some people failed. And, and also uh, there was an underrepresentation of the African-American uh, group or just black men in general that are known to have an increased incidence of the disease and also increased mortality. So when we use a broad brush to paint a picture like that, then you can actually disproportionately uh, affect a, a subpopulation of patients that might actually have our aggressive disease. And that's become really the, the area, the focus of a lot of research, including the one in my lab, looking at the subset of patients that might indeed have aggressive biology or just have a different type of uh, disease progression that needs to be to be uh, properly investigated and applied to other men, not even of that race group, that could potentially benefit from that um, scrutiny in terms of the disease process. So let's back up for a second, maybe. I, I, I want to understand the scale of the problem in the African-American population. In, in your research, I guess maybe could you describe is there is there a cancer disparity issue here with African American right. men and prostate cancer, or or you know health inequity, or is there even a difference between those terms? Maybe just if you could give me a big picture understanding of that. And and uh, you know this is a very important topic uh, because the the problem with prostate cancer among African American men or even men of African origin is is multifactorial. And in order for us to really understand this properly, we have to understand the the spectrum of disease uh, and how that impacts outcomes. So there are two main categories. Incidence, which simply means how often does prostate cancer develop in this population. So the incidence of prostate cancer among African-American men is about 1.6-fold more than in um, non-African-American patients or in the Caucasian patients. That's, the, that's what the stat says. And the mortality within dying from prostate cancer is about 2.4-fold more, right? So there's increased occurrence of the disease, and when they get it, they also have an increased uh, risk of dying or increased death from the disease. So that's the, the beginning and the end. In between is a whole spectrum of causal factors. And some, as you mentioned, is socioeconomic access issues and quality of care and, and also some biology, meaning that the tumor could be uh, different and the, and and each each of us and everyone in the field needs to really understand what phase of the disease we are describing when it comes to disparity. Because when you look at prostate cancer, there is an incidence issue, which is why are they getting it more? That's a question, and it's in and of itself, right? And then there's a diagnosis, which is when is it diagnosed? Are we diagnosing this later in the in the group? How are we diagnosing it? Is our diagnose, uh, diagnostic capabilities? Uh, a par with where the disease is located and how we are catching it. Why are we catching it later at later stages rather than earlier on? Is that is it an access issue that we are not diagnosing these things early, right? So that's also a question. The third question is treatment delivery, right? Which is, are they getting the care they need? Right? Are we giving them the care they need? Are they getting it in a timely manner? Is, it, is, it, is the quality of care good, right? That's treatment delivery, which, which is a separate question that can accentuate the disparity. Then we look at treatment response, meaning that with the treatments that we have available, are there different responses based on the different underlying biology? And can we exploit that to really get new therapies that can help populations of aggressive biology? And this is really a field of uh, research in a lot of other diseases as well, right? And that may or may not be true. There may not be any difference in response treatment at all. And that's fine. That's great, right? But that also is a field of investigation. And then outcomes, which is mortality. And all these things contribute to the results we see in the big data analysis. And I, and I think as a research field, sometimes we struggle to define the question. And so there's a lot of controversy in the field. And I think 
right out of the gate, I wanted to make sure that our audience are, are, are understand which the spectrum of disparities when we talk about prostate cancer disparities in African American men. Right, that's really helpful. And so your goal, you and your team's goal, you're trying to make it easier for doctors to to find and treat aggressive tumors, especially in in African American men. So let's get into it. And I guess maybe it's complicated work you're doing. Uh, maybe you could start by telling me what a biomarker is and why Great. that's key to your research and where you're going. So, you know, a biomarker is simply something that you can use to tell you what's going on in a disease process. So for prostate cancer, the best biomarker we have, which even though there's a lot of criticisms that it's not that good, and the oldest biomarker we have, believe it or not, is PSA, the prostate-specific antigen. So the PSA is a, is a, a blood uh, uh, protein that you're able to do a blood test and you're able to know the levels. And there are normal levels and there are abnormal levels. And when the patient has an abnormal level, um, you can suspect a process going on. An abnormal level doesn't always mean cancer. And what, what it says is that there might be something going on in the prostate. It could be an enlarged prostate, it could be an infection, it could be all kinds of things. But what's more important is the trend of that biomarker. Is it going up over time or not? And that's how PSA is being used. If it's going up, you know there's something going on. But then we can look at also other biomarkers from the urine or biomarkers from the tissue, tumor tissue and, and all kinds of sources of the body. And error from the tumor tissue itself, which in, those, in that context, we call the genomic biomarkers. And the reason why the field is moving towards more genomic biomarkers is that the blood-based and the urine-based biomarkers gives you a, just a, almost like a litmus test of where the disease is at, but it doesn't really tell you where the disease is going, right? And so if you think about it, it's a biomarker to tell you where the disease is at, and we can use genomic biomarkers to tell you where the disease will likely go, meaning that it gives you an indication of this is aggressive, is this going to cause a problem soon or not, right? And that's where the field is going, and the genomic biomarkers becomes a new thing. So currently when we talk about biomarkers, it's default to genomic biomarkers, but it doesn't mean that it's only the genes that are used as biomarkers. PSA is the first one. Could the genomic biomarker be, be different uh, in African-American men compared to European-American men? So this is, yes, and the, the simple answer is yes. And that's where uh, there's a lot of exploding research. So um, the, as you know, in the breast cancer literature and other literature, you know, the, uh, uh, the gene mutations impact biology and, and outcomes, right? And um, w the, the, the premise of this whole uh, discoveries is that the, we're using the race as a surrogate for biology. And, and this is an important point. So what I mean is that it's not to say that whatever goes on African-American men is unique or different, but rather what goes on African-American men is an enriched biology that may be present in other ethnic groups or race groups, but it's enriched in that population. So if we can learn more about what's going on in that population, then we can help other, other populations that exhibit similar biology. And the way, the simple way that I describe that is, you know, 50 plus years ago, we, we first identified the BRCA mutation in, in breast cancer, the BRCA mutations, in Ashkenazi Jewish populations. That was where the enrichment was. So we thought that was what it was about. Then eventually we realized that, wow, this mutation also occurred in African-American women with breast cancer, right? And then we also realized that actually there are some drugs that work better for patients that have this mutation. And so now we've gone from studying a population to understanding that, yes, it's actually present in other populations, but it's enriched in a certain subpopulation. Now we've identified drugs that actually work better against 
mutations across the globe that have that mutation. And I think that's the concept of really studying these subpopulations. It's a way to understand enriched biology so we can help the entire populations of patients that have that. And I think that's where our field is now with studying African-American men and genes that predict aggressive biology in that subpopulation. So I saw that, that uh, some of your work has been focused on uh, conducting a clinical trial, testing the performance of a new genetic test called Decipher. Um, yes. And so I wonder if you could take a moment, kind of tell us what is Decipher and what makes this trial unique and potentially important. Um, thank you. So I, I think uh, that this is a this is a very very important uh, uh, topic. So um, there are multiple platforms, genomic platforms that do tests. Uh, that do give clinicians an indicator of disease uh, uh, severity. So the Decipher test is one of one of many. Um, the, I think the unique thing about Decipher is that it's it operates independent of the clinical characteristics of the patient. So Decipher just looks at a gene expression, gene mutation profile for some 22 genes, and is able to predict the risk of five-year metastasis in the patient, and will give you a score anywhere from zero to one, where one is really bad and zero uh, is, is really um, on the lower end. So anything zero to zero, to 0 0.4 is low, and then 0 0.4 to 0 0.6 is intermediate, and 0.6 and above is high. And it's a high, low, intermediate, and a high genomic risk right, of having metastasis at five years. And this was developed in a large platform of patients, but never really um, looked at in African-American populations uh, or had a lower representation of that. Yeah. Let me interrupt you there, if you don't mind. So this is a... No. This is a, a genomic test where it's looking at the gene expression of, did you say 22 different genes? 22 gene panels. And I have to clarify, this is within the tumor tissue. So this is different from a genetic test, which talks about risk of developing prostate cancer. It's different. This is a genomic test looking at the tumor that has already formed mm. and is giving you a, a measure of how, based on the mutational uh, pattern, how aggressive this tumor is right and and so it doesn't talk about anything about your risk of developing it or what your family members risk is or none of that right so it's not it's not talking about that and i think that's a clear and important distinction that needs to be made about what these tools are looking at but what really struck me is you said that the test um was originally validated did you say it was yeah it wasn't a, a direct uh, concerted effort to have groups of patients that have uh, an African-American uh, patient's involvement. There was, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of between 5 to 10% only. And this is across the board. This is not just the CEPHA. This is all the other platforms, right? They all have a very, very low representation of African-American cohort. And, and the, 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 this study we're doing is we want to make sure that these biomarkers that are much needed, that is telling us how bad these aggressive diseases are, work in patients that have the highest occurrence of the disease, the highest incidence, because that's something that we all should be doing um, in order to not even worsen the disparity come when we are working in, in the field of personalized medicine and then there's nothing in the populations that actually have the highest incidence. So this study, the Van Damme study, is looking to prospectively validate the decipher test that is clinically used in men of African origin, and um, and also see if the, the, we can learn from the gene expression pattern any unique biology in the African-American men that will help us treat them appropriately. Um, as I mentioned, this platform is probably the only one that does not is agnostic to your PSA, your Gleason, or your DRE, just looks at the mutations in your tumor and is able to very accurately predict um, the risk of five-year metastasis. So the clinical factors just add to make it even better at, at uh, giving our patients some um, good prognostic uh, indicators. 
That's really interesting, and uh, on a bunch of different levels. One, the test itself sounds very, very promising. But two, the you really underscored. I mean, I hear all the time. I'm not a scientist, but I hear all the time about how minority underrepresentation in clinical trials is a real issue. And here you've you're, you've identified one, and you're actively working to to fix that mistake. Absolutely. And we are having some, uh, you know, in the near term, we'll be able to close the study. We are um, just past halfway enrollment. And, and we, we, are, we, are, we think that, you know, this is going to really give prospectively validation, uh, uh, conclusive evidence of, of its use and its benefit. And not only that, but because we get, other, we get to study other genes that are come out, we have 46,000 genes per patient that we're able to interrogate. So this opens up avenues for a lot of good research uh, at the end of the study. That's really exciting. And so, you know, I've been kind of asking you these questions, but maybe I'm asking the wrong questions. And I wonder if there's something that you are really excited about in your work that you and your your team in the lab are, you know, over the weekend looking forward to getting to the office on Monday so you can keep working on something. Is is there something that you'd like to chat about? Absolutely. So, so under these uh, lines of you know working with these biomarkers, I think um, the field overall has struggled with inadequate sample size to answer any question. So we identify the problem, and we kind of know the solution, but we don't know how to get there because we don't have the tools to get to the solution. And what I mean by that is. Um, because of a lot of what has gone on in the medical field and things that we've learned from the past, um, not only do we not have enough samples from the African-American population, but also we do not have willing participants because um, of a lack of trust in the medical system and X, Y, Z, right? So you have both competing risks where it's, it's deep in the problem. And, and so my, my team is working with the communities and really getting the word out there, making them aware of the need to get involved in these processes because, you know, this is how we can stay ahead of the disease, and this is how the field is moving to personalized medicine. I want to be able to see every patient come to the office in the clinic and treat them exactly how their body needs and not what some p-value or some squares tell me, right? But I want to be able to personalize my treatment to the patient sitting in front of me, whether black, white, or yellow, right? And that's really where we want to be at, personalized medicine to the patient. And, and to do that, we need to understand the disease in all subpopulations. And so part of my effort here, knowing that, you know, the African-American population is a very heterogeneous population, is to look into the West African continent as well, where, uh, believe it or not, prostate cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death in the West African country. That's huge, right? Now, this is, this is basically, if you think about this uh, for a second, these are men that are separated by several generations and decades apart, different environments, different risk factors, different, and yet prostate cancer is a common problem on both sides of the, of the continent, right? So that's a huge problem, prostate cancer is. Yeah. And so obviously um, that speaks to uh, some component of biology and obviously access and all the other things we've talked about. But yes, given the fact that prostate cancer is up there on the map, I think we can learn that there's indeed genomic heterogeneity among African-American population, but we can learn by paralleling our studies on the African continent. And that's a big effort in my lab as well to really validate all these genes that we find and all these biomarkers that we're looking at in, in men of African origin as well, living within the African continent, in the Jamaica, Bahamas, on the islands, if they have any African ancestry to understand how we can learn and treat prostate cancer globally. And so that's a big focus in my lab as well. Well, so how do you do that? So are you obtaining uh, tissue samples, clinical samples from 
uh, West Africa? Right. So we are working on a, on a big consortia. It's got the Men of African Descent Carcinoma of the Prostate Consortium. We have all our co um, collaborators and investigators are from different parts of the African continent. We are, we, we are an equal partners on the table. We propose studies together. We write manuscripts together and we're working together. I think that's an important thing for collaboration. I think, you know, physicians all across the world and in, in Africa as well care, of, care about their patients and they want to do what's right for their patients. And I think uh, when you have collaborations that really partners with these uh, physicians and say, how can we both study a problem and help each other on, on the other side of the, of the aisle? I think that's the way to do it. And so we had a very fruitful collaboration. Uh, we've had a team in Ghana that are made up of a pathologist, a urologist, a radiation oncologist, and we have been studying this issue. We have IRBs in place. We have teams in place, and we're working on, on parallel problems that are of mutual interest to both of us, to the United States and to uh, Ghana and and the African continent as well through this big consortia. We collaborate with multiple institutions across the United States as well um, that are looking at this specific issue. And so by that, in that process, we can learn a lot um, through that consortia um, to, to help push this issue forward um, uh, and, and, and get to a very, very, uh, I think in the next few years, you'll be hearing a lot in the, both in the scientific literature and in the communities about the impact we are making and the results we are finding. That's outstanding. Uh I just want to say thank you for all that you're doing. Um, and, and if I could take a moment to embarrass you, if you don't mind, you're from Ghana. And yeah. can you just tell me what was it like on your first day of high school when you were seven years old? <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I'm, 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 I'm really blessed. I, I, I think I will say that all I get come from above. And I think I, I, I'm lucky to be able to use that to bless humanity and, and help, you know, as much as I can. But yes, I was a very, uh, I was very young when I when I started high school. I was the youngest in Africa, five years younger than the average um, age group. And um, it was it was my my dad is actually a, a minister of the gospel, but he also saw an Air Force pilot, so he believed in the military way. So he put me in boarding school, <laughs> seven, and that was that was taught me some some you know getting tough, you know, and, and being able to go through that. It was it was it was a you know it could be emotionally difficult at times, but I think um, I was I thrived very well. I had people who looked for me and uh, when I was I went to you know high school very early went to college very early and started medical school in, in Ghana uh, for two years I did have an interest in medical research so my mentors advised me to pursue a, a higher education in the United States and you know came to do my PhD and here in, in New York City and uh, and I went on to do you know a, a, a combined MD PhD in New York City went through my fellowship and residency and all that good stuff and and that's where I found my passion for prostate cancer finding that that was a problem across both continents you know just it just felt right to really focus on that disease because you know you do one thing in the lab and you you help people all around the world, you know, in the United States and in, in, on the African continent and in, 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 the, in the islands. And, and also not only that, like I said from the beginning, that you're able to actually find things that may help other populations that are not even of African origin, but might have those pathways that could help from new drugs and new therapies that are coming down the line. I think that's really has, which has really got me, up, got me up in the morning, made me excited when I wake up with all the gifts that I have now to do this. And again, thanks to the American Cancer Society for that, because you make it happen. You give us the funding, you give us the the dedicated time to really work on these important um, issues and and just being being a, a funded uh, a member of the of the team is really outstanding and I can thank you all enough for for recognizing this and and putting putting uh, so much commitment behind it. I think this is this incredible. You you will not be disappointed. That's really nice of you to say. We feel blessed to be be able to support you and your work. It's a, a heck of a mission you've got 
helping a lot of people. And we, I'm still trying to get over being seven years old. I, at that time, I was probably, you know, did I know my times tables yet? Could I do three times six? Maybe? Oh, gosh, yeah, you know? no. It was. I, I, I'm the last of four kids. Very, very. I think I, I kind of started self-teaching myself, reading my brother's books, and my, my, I had two big brothers and a sister, and I would just go and pick their books and try to try to read it and just kind of, you know, maybe I was I had a little bit of a, and I'm, I'm still competitive, maybe on the sports field, I like soccer, and I always like to win and be very competitive, but, and I know I know how to lose, I lose well too, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I, I lose graciously, right, gracefully, but but always trying to be very, very, you know, at, at the best of what I can do, to the best of my abilities, you know, always trying to be the best of myself and trying to learn and trying to, you know, so that really came in handy when, as a little child, I was very curious, I would always try to be in, you know, I got myself into trouble a couple of times trying to go into the first aid box and do things I wasn't supposed to do and trying to create experiments that got me in big trouble with my parents. But very early on, I had that curiosity of always asking why. Why is that? And can we go to the bottom of this? And that was always my, 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 my thing that kept me in the research field. And so it wasn't, it was to, to no surprise to my parents that I I took to research the way I did and really wanted to not only just be content to being a physician, but rather being a physician at the, at the leading edge of science and moving the field forward. That's just what I wanted to do very early. And, and with the support of my parents and, and, you know, a good support system around me, I think, you know, it, it, it takes a village, right? So I've had a lot of mentors along the way. Um, yes, uh, talent goes a long way, but I think nurturing is even more important than talent. So I've had very good nurturing throughout the process. And, and I, I, I also give back, you know, just remembering those that helped me along the way. I take mentoring very seriously in my lab and all oh, my, my team know that, that I, I take that very seriously. And I think that's really how we, we can give back to, from everything we've received. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure working in this field. Wow, you spoke of grace and graciousness on the soccer field. You're, clearly you're exhibiting <laughs> that. That's really nice. So let me just, maybe if I could close with one question. I know you're busy. You've got a busy day in the lab and in clinic. But, you know, we're the American Cancer Society, and a lot of our listeners are cancer patients or caregivers um, helping their loved ones, um, you know, fight cancer. And I guess I wanted to ask as a clinician and a researcher, what message would, would you like to share with um, cancer patients and survivors? Yeah. Um, so this is a, uh, uh, this is a, a, a thing that is near and dear to my heart because I, I often um, say that you know, our patients are teachers and um, being, a, being a physician myself, you know, you, you go through you know, interacting with patients, and you you are always in a position where you think you you are helping people, um, but until you you go through that yourself, you you really never know what it is like. Um, now I I, I I share this selectively, but I I lost a son to brain cancer um, during my journey to be a you know in the in the world of being a physician myself, and I I became I moved from being a physician to being a a, a dad and a and a, a patient's family and a caregiver, right? And so. When you're there, you recognize how 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 is we are connected in in various ways. And one time you're on the receiving end, and one time you're on the giving end. But I have to tell, and I just want to tell our patients all around, our listeners, that you know it doesn't matter where you are. Um, there's always a place for you to give back, um, and that being involved in research is the way to give back, not only to yourself if great something comes up during your your lifetime that could help, but even to the next generation. 
and that may come after you, maybe maybe a, a son or a daughter or someone else who's coming behind you that might need that. And being involved in research, whether it's a, a tissue bank, a tumor repository, or just um, participating in clinical trials is the only way that we can actually be all involved. And and right now, it, it you know, it may be going through the, the thick and thin of it, but know that there is always hope for the future. And um, I just want to thank all the listeners and all the patients and the caregivers that your role in making all this work successful is cannot be celebrated more than or cannot be you know we we, we need to recognize that and we we have a we have a responsibility to really uh, steward those resources that you, you make possible as we learn and as we we um, fight to cure cancer be it prostate cancer brain cancer whatever the cancer is i mean we we need to as as a community um, work hard at this and you are part of that team so thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Yamoa. And I'm terribly sorry um, that you and your family had to go through that. I'm, I'm really sorry. But I also just want to thank you for all that you've done to be the source of hope for, uh, for patients and your family and for being on the giving end and for inspiring all of us to give back. We, um, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And uh, thank you all for the listeners that have been supporting this and for American Cancer Society for the work you're doing and um, for all the, all the things that are, are yet to come. So looking forward to continue to be a, a, a recipient of your generosity. Thank you.